I'm going to venture a guess that the busiest people on this Super Bowl Sunday are Peyton Manning and Shane. <laughs> you know, we look forward to this annual Super Bowl party. I don't know. It, it is a true event, and it's interesting. I get excited about the Super Bowl for a lot of – it's kind of a holiday around my house uh, in terms – I don't know if Evie always appreciates that I treat it that way, but I certainly enjoy it and stuff like that. A couple different things hit me as I think about the Super Bowl and stuff like that. One of the things, not that I partake in any gambling, because I don't, but it's very fascinating to look at all the different bets that go on. I don't know if you followed this at all. They have what they call prop bets, so you can bet the over, not just the over-under on the game and the score and stuff, but you can bet on whether the coin toss will be heads or tails. They actually have a bet on whether the over-under of Americans watching the game, and I heard this, was 117 million. Now, that means if one of you doesn't watch the game and we're at 116,999, you're losing a lot of people a lot of money, just to give you something. And I told Shane, I wonder what the over-under is for that flag football game with Lake Michigan and Lake Erie out there, <laughs> that there's at least going to be one throw that goes a little bit long and somebody catches it and goes flat out. I said to Shane, do you really want me to give that idea out? He says, yes, go for it. He says, let's do it. So it's a, it's a big deal. Now, tying into, you're like, what does this have to do with the sermon? Did Jeff, has he lost his mind? I'm going to tie it in in a second. We are in, so if you want to have your Bibles, multitask here with me now for a little bit. Proverbs chapter 2, 1 through 22. And here's what we've been doing. Let's remember our structure before I read the passage, the structure of the book of Proverbs. It began with a preamble. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 was the preamble to the Proverbs. It began with the foundation of the preamble. The fear of the Lord is the very beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Fools despise knowledge and instruction. The preamble is followed by the prologue. The prologue goes, and this is the section we're in now, from chapter 1, verse 8, to chapter 9, verse 18. And here's the function of the prologue. The prologue is like this giant commercial that's out there that says, here's why you should get wisdom. So I'll give you another fun fact about the Super Bowl, unless you Google it and correct me sometime. I think I read this earlier this week. You know, they have all the Super Bowl commercials and stuff like that. I want to say that for a 30-second ad, companies are paying $5 million for a 30-second ad. In other words, they're putting, so to get Peyton Manning to say, buy Papa John's and don't buy, you know, Pizza Hut, $5 million for 30 seconds. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8 to chapter 9, verse 18 is priceless. No amount of money can be put on this. It's what satisfies more than anything, but it's Solomon's commercial to get wisdom. I've given you the application questions over the previous weeks. Two weeks ago was the application question, who will you listen to? And it was the familial. My son, listen to your father's teaching. Don't forsake your mother's instruction. Last week, we had lady preacher in the streets crying out at the city gates, before commerce, before everything, get wisdom. The question is, do you have a teachable spirit? Are you really teach? Who will you listen to? Are you really teachable? 
This week, we're back to the family. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins, my son, and we're going to explore that in some detail. We're back to the familial, and your key question, what you are looking to, is the question having to do with what is wisdom worth? What is it worth to you? Not what we say, I know we're all going to answer that, we're good presbyterians. Worth everything. I'm asking the question functionally about how you live. Are we just hearers of the word or are we doers of the word? Do we just know the truth or do we live the truth? What is wisdom worth? And I want you thinking about that as we take a look now. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Let's pray. Our Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come before you, praying that as we've read your word, you would pour out your spirit to teach us, to illumine our hearts, to make your word clearer, to to be our true teacher, to give us hearts that eagerly receive your words Take heed to your instruction. Call out for wisdom. Raise our voices for insight. Seek it like silver. Search for it that we may have the fear of the Lord and knowledge and understanding be protected and guarded over by the way of wisdom. Holy Spirit, work in us in a mighty way. We pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. In our Westminster Shorter Catechism, how's that for a switch? From the Super Bowl to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Okay, talk about a segue. Question 35 asks this. It says, what is sanctification? And the answer is sanctification is the work of God's free grace. So right there, it's distinguishing from justification. That is an act, a one-time act of free grace. This is an ongoing work still of God's grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man. Every aspect of us, body, soul, affections, inclinations, mind, heart, emotions, renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live 
unto righteousness. I read this to you because Proverbs 2 is all about sanctification, the process of change, the process of transformation, how we change, the spiritual dynamics involved in change, of moving towards our goal. The catechism calls it renewed in the whole man after the image of God, conformity to the image of God, which is Christ. Other ways the scriptures put it is growing in complete, completeness, integrity, wholeness, achieving our, the Bible uses the word telos, which is purpose or goal. A way of looking at it is maturity. Relating as we ought, as we were designed and created to, to God, to ourselves, to others, and to the world around us. Sometimes I think we say, and I think we say a little too simplistically, all we need to do is believe the gospel. Now there's a kernel of truth in that, but does that really work sometimes? Do you ever try to just say, just believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, like it's a formula, without really taking stock of the dynamics that are involved? What is involved in the gospel? What does the gospel really mean? What does it really mean? Proverbs chapter 2 opens the door to the dynamics of this process. And the structure of this passage is really quite simple. Just like there are two parts to the catechism question. I want you to notice the catechism. We're renewed in the whole man in order to live unto righteousness, live unto God. There's a renewal part and a dying part, a dying unto sin. This passage is divided into two parts. It has a renewal part verses 1 through 11, and a dying unto sin, which the key word that's used there is deliverance. And it's used there for an important reason that we'll get to. So the two parts of this outline, the two parts of this text, verses 1 through 11 is all about renewal. Verses 12 through 22 is all about deliverance. And it's opening the door to the dynamics of change. How many of us came here today wanting to change? If we're Christians, that tension ought to be there. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches that if that tension is there, that's a real evidence of your salvation. All you have to do is look at things like Romans chapter 7, where Paul is talking about what I want to do, I don't do, what I don't want to do, that's the direction I go. At the very least, he's talking about a tension that's involved there, and that tension seems to be an evidence of God working in your life. So if God's working in your life, there ought to be some area where you're seeking change, how you relate to God, how you think about yourself, how you think and relate to others, and how you relate to the world. So let's work through this text and follow the structure of the passage, first of all, about renewal. Now, I want you to look with me at verses 1 through 11, and 1 through 11 can be divided further between verses 1 through 4 and verses 5 through 11, and each of these sections revolve around two key words. The two key words are if and then. Verse 1 says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Verse 3, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. Verse 4, if, it's repeated, you know when something's repeated several times, maybe we ought to start paying attention, just a small hint there. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, and verse 4 begins, then, so here come some promises, you'll understand the fear of the Lord. You'll find the knowledge of God. Verse 9 repeats it again, again with the repetition. 
Solomon must be serious about this. He says, then you will understand righteousness, the right order to things, justice, equity, and every good path. Now, let's pay attention to this. Look at this closely with me. If we take this seriously, it can sound confusing, doesn't it? It doesn't sound very conditional. If you do certain things, then certain things will happen. Whoa, time out. I'm not sure I'm liking this a whole lot. That sounds really conditional. How do I make sense of that and still be true to the text? Ray Ortland, who's a commentator I'm reading on the book of Proverbs, I just like the way he puts it, and I want to read the following illustration he gave. He talks about how this sounds like legalism and how that can be a possible objection. And when you read, if you do, if you do A, B, and C, then D, E, and F will happen. And he says, wait a second, is this legalism? He says, let's define our terms. We obviously cannot deserve his grace or earn it, but if you think about it, he uses the following illustration. He says, I want you to pretend for a second that you and I are standing on the brink of the Grand Canyon. It's absolutely majestic, completely magnificent. As an aside, I've never been to the Grand Canyon. It's on my bucket list, without a doubt, to go see it. Absolutely majestic. And you're standing there on the brink, and you're loving what your eyes have the privilege of seeing. And I'm standing there beside you, but my eyesight's bad. So I'm not seeing it real well. I'm not taking it in. So what do I do? I put on my glasses. John Calvin said the scriptures are like our eyeglasses that we put on. But the lenses are dirty, smudgy, filthy, and scratched. So even though I have the glasses on, I'm looking through the lenses, I can't see them because of the dirt and filth and smudge. So I can't enter into, understand with my mind, my affections can't be impacted my inclinations. I'm not being renewed in the whole man because I can't enter into all that magnificence and majesty that's right in front of me. So you say, clean your glasses. If you say to me, if you clean your glasses, then you'll see the Grand Canyon. I say, stop it. Don't be legalistic. How dare you be be so legalistic? And here's the truth. You're not being legalistic. Legalism, and here's the definition, is thinking I can do something to make God pay attention to me. I can do something to make God love me more. I can do something to deserve the grace of God. Legalism, define your terms. Legalism is earning or meritorious thinking. Grace is reaching for something. God gives you a new ability, regenerates you, gives you ability, and now you're putting yourself... Think about what our theologians and reformers called means of grace. You decisively reach out as a new man in Christ to take what God has given you. In a few minutes, we're going to feed on the Lord's Supper. If the elders come by and they offer you the tangible presence and symbol and sign and seal of the covenant of grace, and you go, you're being legalistic. Take that away from me. They're offering you the grace of God. They're offering you the grace of God. And I want you to think about something. Pay attention to this text. Look carefully with me at verse 1. The passage is addressed, my son, to one who already belongs to the family. 
to the one. This is not a passage about how to become a Christian. This is a passage addressed to one who belongs already, is in. And we're going to look in a minute at what it means to be a Christian. But I want you just to pay attention to how the scriptures exhort us to holiness. Solomon says, my son, the New Testament, Paul writes, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, who you are, your identity, firm, secure, irrevocable, unchangeable. If you have been adopted by God, you're in. Now be imitators of God. Or he says to the Colossians, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. How much, though, do you pay attention? See, here's a question in terms of your reading of the Scriptures. How much do you pay attention to what the Scriptures actually say? Let me give you a hermeneutical principle. How's that for a big term right there? In other words, a hint on how to read the Bible. And I'm going to be real deep here for a second. You ready for it? Slow down. How's that for deep scripture teaching for a second? I'll even give you an illustration to back it up. How many of you, I used to love way back when, it's a dated illustration. Some of you will not, but how many of you remember the old TV sitcom Taxi? Anybody remember? And I used to love that TV show. Used to love. My favorite character was the, car- the cabbie Jim Ignatowski, played by Christopher Lloyd. And I remember the episode where he went and got his driver's license. And he's getting his driver's license, and of course his brain is fried by drugs and everything else and stuff like that, so he can't think. All his taxi driver buddies are with him. And so he asked the question, now I'm going to do my best Jim Ignatowski imitation. You don't get this every week in a sermon, by the way. He goes, what does a yellow light mean? His buddies are helping him. See, this is what grace is. You're allowed to cheat. God gives you the answer. His buddies gave him the answer. They said, slow down. What does a yellow light mean? (laughs) Slow down. (laughs) And they go on and on with this. Now, see, you'll remember what, how do you read the scriptures? Slow down. You want to know what causes some of the biggest chaos in our Christian walk? Confusing the doctrines of justification and sanctification. It creates chaos. Proverbs chapter 2 is all about sanctification that begins with justification in the sense of my son. How much will you slow down and embrace Who you are in Christ, will you savor it? Will you drink it in? Will you push it deep into your heart? Will you preach it to yourself? Will you ask others to help you with it? So that, look at the escalation of words. Now you're getting to the if-then. My son, you're already in. Now, if grace tastes amazing to you because you're an actual son of God, look at this. It says, receive, treasure, Be attentive, incline, call out, raise your voice, seek and search. Here's the point. Wisdom, growth, and renewal, maturity are not automatic to us. You don't get there by drifting and complacency. But you get there by recognizing you are already a son, valuing 
See, my son, if you receive my words, what are the words of God about? Are they a textbook for life? No, they are the special revelation of God. God revealing himself, his heart, his knowledge, his commitment to save you, his commitment to go to hell and back so that he wouldn't lose you. Now, do you receive those words? Treasure those words. Call out for those words. Seek for those words. Incline your heart for those words. Dr. Ortland says, he says, you cannot become a significant person by being neutral and cute and safely unchanged. This is complacency. God is offering you a treasure infinitely worth seeking, more of himself entering into you, renewing you. God is not saying, if you seek me, I'll love you more. He's saying, if you seek me, you will find me. For all that I am worth. Again, the key is, do we really understand what happens when we become a Christian? And do we really understand the distinction, the difference between becoming a Christian and growing as a Christian? Another way of putting it, do we understand the difference between justification and sanctification? See, I'm going to press this home. This, to me, is absolutely, I, I can't overestimate how important a point this is. Richard Lovelace is a theologian that I, that I love to read, and one of his books is called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. Another one's called Renewal as a Way of Life. And in it, he put it very well. Listen to this quote. He says, we all automatically gravitate. Now, I'm going to read this quote slowly and take it apart for you a little bit. Think about this. We all automatically, in other words, we gravitate. What does it mean to gravitate? Gravity, it's inert, you jump up, gravity's going to pull you down. He's describing the inertia, the gravity of your heart. He says, we all gravitate naturally toward the assumption that we are justified by our level of sanctification. Now, let me define that. Yeah, justified, you're declared right. What does that mean? You're okay. You're validated. You're forgiven. You're not guilty. There's no charge against you. You're approved. You're accepted. But he says, here's the gravitational pull of the flesh. The gravitational pull of our heart is to believe we're okay by our level of performance and not just religious performance, not just spiritual achievement, but how we're doing in the world. How do we present ourselves? How do we think of ourselves? How do we think of, what do others think of us? Do we do a good job? When we're up front, will everybody, what will they think of us? Am I like to, he says, the gravity of your heart. And I want to ask you this question. Do you know your particular ways to understand the gravity? Gravity is universal, isn't it? I don't think we can escape gravity on the earth. I'm not a physics major, but that's the last I heard. This is the gravity of your flesh. To judge how okay you are by your performance. That means when we read in the scripture these if-then statements, they can become very confusing to us. He says, and when this posture is adopted, it inevitably focuses our attention not on Christ, but on the adequacy of our own obedience. We start each day with our personal security. Now think about these words, with our, our sense of being okay in the world. Not resting on the accepting love of God and the sacrifice of Christ, but on our present feelings or recent achievements in the Christian life. Since these arguments do not quiet the human conscience, we are inevitably moved either to discouragement 
I'm depressed because of how bad I'm doing, how poor my performance is, which leads to apathy, or on the other hand, self-righteousness, which will falsify the record in order to achieve a sense of peace. Loveless goes on, he says, what we need to do is at the outset of each day, we should hear God saying, my son, you are accepted because the guilt of sin is covered by the righteousness of Christ. You are free from bondage to sin through the power of Jesus in your life. You are not alone, but accompanied by the counselor, the spirit of the Messiah. You have authority with the freedom to resist and expel the powers of darkness. You must start with who you are in Christ, and then as you apply the gospel to your life and begin to value that, you grow in seeking, searching, treasuring, inclining, and look at what God gives us. Verse 6, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. How does this come? From his word. Ray Ortland says, the Bible is the mouth of God today. Not a voice speaking within our minds, but the Bible lying open before our eyes. What is sanctification? The work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole person after the image of God and are enabled more and more to live unto righteousness, to be renewed in God, to live unto God, and second, to die unto sin. Look with me at verses 12 through 22. And again, learn to, and I won't repeat my Jim Ignatowski imitation, but it's the same principle. Let's slow down as we read it. And notice what's repeated as we look at this. Twice, the word deliver is repeated in this. Verse 12, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech. And then again in verse 16, delivering you from this time the smooth words of the adulterous woman. Isn't that interesting? Perverted speech and smooth words. Take a look for a second what that means. Again, and this is why Proverbs is teaching wisdom. If things were onslaught, direct, you know, again, if it was the adulterous woman just coming up to you right off the bat, Hey, you, sleep with me now. We'd probably go, no. I hope we go, no. Oftentimes, though, I mean, listen carefully to the light. Smooth words. Hey, they're handsome. Aren't you good looking? You know, things that flatter us, especially when we're judging our okayness, our justification, by our sanctification, by our achievements, our status, our position our wealth, our looks, our power, our prestige, our acceptance, all the, the gravitational pull of our heart. And look at the promise of this. The promise is deliverance, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, from the foolish woman and her smooth words. Isn't it interesting? The New Testament talks about how Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The words are always the revelation of what's going on in your heart, isn't it? And isn't it really interesting? Do you notice how how often in the Bible, 
the exhortations to holiness have to do with our words, with our speech. Some of you won't like to look at the community group guide this week because I gave you all the famous tongue assignment out of World Harvest Mission's Sonship course. Do you want to know what the tongue assignment is? Because some of you are not in community groups and you can enter into it. The tongue assignment was part of the discipleship course that was done as part of their mission, and it was to teach us your need for deliverance, your need for the gospel. And the tongue assignment was simply for one week on the negative side. Do not complain. Do not boast. Do not be defensive. Do not gossip. I remember going through this discipleship course, and many of us go, fine, I'll just be quiet. I can pass this course. But that's not the rest of the assignment. Because on the positive side, it was build up, speak the truth in love, seek to always affirm, give praise, be thankful, rejoice. Yes, I gave the tongue assignment in your community. Community group guys, leaders are probably going to be empty this week. So, you know, everybody knows the homework assignment ahead of time. But the Hebrew for perverted speech, what we're delivered from in verse 12 is very interesting. Ray Ortland again says, perverted speech is not limited to just bad words and dirty jokes. It includes even good words, but good words being used to turn things upside down, upheaval, turning things upside down and inside out. He says, words should represent reality. They should be true to what is. But words can twist reality. Words can be used to flip meaning into their opposite. To know what you're being delivered from, you have to ask, what is the purpose of our speech? If words are supposed to represent reality, John Calvin asked the question, why did God create our tongues and give us speech? if not for our mutual support and charity. Tim Keller says, God has given us speech for the purpose of nurturing tender love and fraternity. God, by who he is, is a community of persons who are completely interdependent and loving. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit speaking truth, hiding nothing from each other, using their speech to build up and glorify one another, and then we are made in the image of this God so that the purpose of the speech is to become more interdependent, not independent, interdependent. In other words, to build community and to build each other up. In other words, to empower them by showing them more of reality. And the deliverance, the dying unto sin that's out at the heart of this is being delivered from words coming out of a heart that are not according to reality that are twisting what is, that are not building interdependence and community. And I want you to think about something with me. When the original readers were reading Proverbs and thinking about this, okay, the people of Israel were reading this, what would they think of when they would think of deliverance? For them, deliverance meant the exodus, they didn't have the New Testament yet. That wasn't written. They didn't have what we have in terms of a completed revelation. The model or paradigm for salvation for them was the Exodus. And the Exodus meant for them deliverance from Egypt, 
passing through the Red Sea, moving where? Into the wilderness, where you're led by the glory, cloud, and fire, overshadowing them, the Holy Spirit, moving them towards the promised land. Look with me at verse 21. And look at where this deliverance is leading. Verse 21 gives us the promise, the upright will inherit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. You are being, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby he is renewing you in the whole man after the image of God, enabling you more and more to live unto righteousness, live unto God as you are being delivered. And notice the kind of the barometer of it, your words, your speech, but you are being delivered as you walk through the wilderness, moving towards the promise of the promised land. And what was the land for the Old Testament believers? What is the land for us? The land is the place of blessing the place of the presence of God, the place of consummation, the place of promise. And how are we delivered and brought into the land of plenty, the land of blessing? By Jesus being crucified outside the camp, outside the land. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God didn't deliver him for that time. He forsook him so that he could deliver us so that we could inherit the land moving through the wilderness where we are continually being renewed and delivered, renewed and delivered, renewed and delivered until we reach the promised land, knowing that it's a promise. Verse 21 says, the upright will inhabit the land, will inhabit the consummation, the completion of glory. And this is what delivers us from sin and death and hell. And just as God fed. See, what's our temptation all the time? The people of God, what was their temptation all the time in the Old Testament? Go back to Egypt, right? What did they always want to do? Go back to Egypt. Why go back to Egypt? It was familiar. It was known. Yeah, this might be free. Freedom's not all that it's cracked up to be. At least I know what I'm getting back there. I'll take a little bit of dose of slavery, at least get what I'm comfortable with, what I'm familiar with. And the warning was, Don't go back to Egypt. Walk in the wilderness, trusting the provision of God, the manna from God daily. Give us this day our daily bread. As God leads us into and towards the promised land, you're being renewed and you're being delivered. And as we go to the Lord's table, what is God feeding us? The ultimate manna. The one who came and said he's the bread of life. But instead of bread just to feed, this was the bread that was broken so that you could have life. This is the bread that he continually feeds you with as we travel through the wilderness to the promised land. Father, may we walk by faith and not by sight. May we recognize where all our temptations are to go back to Egypt So go back and may we see where our words are always taking us in this direction, where our words reveal our going back to Egypt. 
And may you deliver us, and may we, as you've promised, you are sanctifying us, renewing us in the whole man to live unto God and to die unto sin. And now, may we eat from this manna from heaven, the bread of life, real food and real drink, to strengthen us, to give us mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.